Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On tonight's program, a virulent modern-day infection can be treated with an ancient technique. Clostridium difficile is a bacterium that lives in many of our guts all the time. In fact, many of us are carriers. Plus, why gifted children's behaviors can lead to mislabeling and misdiagnoses. Our current medical training is pathology-based. It's based on finding problems and then fixing problems. And there's very little emphasis put on identifying strengths and a balanced diagnosis. And OASIS, a national program, provides healthy connections for seniors in central New York. OASIS is a program that really wants to help adults improve their lives and improve the communities that they live in. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, how a gifted child's intensity can lead to mislabeling and misdiagnosis. Plus, how seniors are using lifelong learning opportunities to remain vital. But first, how an ancient type of medical practice is beating a powerful modern-day infection. Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, is a very serious infection, and the incidence of it is on the rise throughout the world. The Centers for Disease Control reports that approximately 347,000 people in the United States alone were diagnosed with this infection in 2012. And of those, at least 14,000 died. And some estimates place that number as even higher, depending on how the numbers are reported. But now, there is an ancient technique for fighting this virulent infection. And here to tell us more about it is Dr. David Heisig, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Heisig. Thanks for coming in. Good morning, Linda. Thanks for having me. So C. difficile is a real problem in this country and worldwide. Tell us exactly what it is and why has it become a greater threat? Well, that's a great question. Clostridium difficile is a bacterium that lives in many of our guts all the time. In fact, many of us are carriers. And when our normal good bacteria are thwarted in some fashion, maybe an antibiotic, maybe a concomitant disease, the Clostridium difficile can overgrow, produce a toxin, and make us very, very sick. So it's basically part and parcel of our everyday life, but because something interferes or throws off the balance of nature, so to speak, in our gut, this thing kind of gets out of control. Right. And not in everybody. Only a minority of us are carriers, but there's enough of us around, and the potential is is great for infection. This is a spore-forming bacterium. In other words, a dirty surface days after contamination can still lead to infection in somebody who is susceptible. So what exactly are the symptoms? What, What do you expect to find in someone who's got an infection with C. diff? Well, in the olden days, when it was relatively less virulent, most people would simply have a crampy, bland, non-bloody diarrhea. They might have a low-grade fever and just not feel well. And in many cases, they would get over the infection on their own. Unfortunately, more current strains have become more virulent. People are sicker and sicker. So people have high white counts and high fevers and are very, very sick. Some are septic. Some lose their colons. They perforate. Some so require emergencies. Act- Mm-hmm. The colon actually has gets a hole in it. And exactly, exactly. Go on, and you said they have to have surgical They can have surgery, maybe even resection of the entire colon. Wow. And the patients actually, uh, in some cases, as you pointed out, die from this. So how who is most at risk for this kind of thing? You mentioned some people are not or are you know will not be uh, affected by this, but others are. Right. If you're a carrier and you are exposed to antibiotics and they kill off the so-called good bacteria, you may end up very, very sick if the Clostridium difficile rises to a point where the toxin becomes clinically apparent. Clarify this for me, though, when you say you're a carrier. At first, you said it's in most of our guts. So what separates the carriers from the rest of us? Well, it's not in most of our guts. It's in a healthy percentage of our guts. So if you have Clostridium difficile, but you're otherwise normal and healthy, you may go through your entire life never knowing about it. 
However, if you are exposed to an antibiotic and it kills off good bacteria, that bad bacteria, the Clostridium difficile, may grow to a point where it gets you sick. Or you may be without Clostridium difficile, but you come in contact with a dirty surface or something contaminated and exposed, you contract it, and then you get sick. And it does spread by this type of of, uh, contact. Okay, that's clearer now. Um, So what are the kinds of things that might also add to the risk factors? In other words, something like surgery, could, could it just a GI, standard GI surgery yes. expose you, that kind of yes. thing? What are some of the other things? Well, inflammatory bowel disease can certainly set you off, such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. In fact, sometimes when we think we are dealing with an ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease flare, in fact, it's not. It's a, a uh, Clostridium difficile infection on top of the inflammatory bowel disease. And when we treat that, the patient goes back to their baseline. Gut surgery can certainly do it. Antibiotic use and even the dose, of one dose of an antibiotic can set really? this off. Really, yes. really. Now, how is that? I mean, is it, again just in someone who might either have otherwise weakened immune system or? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, if you think about it, remember how over the years people would always get an antibiotic before their dentist's appointment or an antibiotic before orthopedic surgery and so forth and so on. And we've cut way back on that because we've realized that the risk of the surgery of the dental uh, procedure is a lot less than the risk for antibiotic-related diarrhea or clostridium difficile. So we've cut back on that. And one of the big uh, things we're trying to do is cut back on the use of antibiotics when they're not necessary. In general, I know that's been right. true, especially in the pediatric population. Because, For everybody. Right. So that Because I guess more virulent strains are developing in yes. response to all of the use, and then... And more resistant strains. Resistant. Exactly. Well, both. You have more virulent strains that are making you sicker, and you have more resistance. So the antibiotics that were able to treat these successfully decades ago are often not working. And the inf- the antibiotics that are being used now have more side effects and are incredibly more expensive, which adds to the healthcare burden. So getting to more of the conventional treatment for something like C. difficile, what are the kinds of treatments that are being used or were being used traditionally for this? Right. Well, there's two sorts of uh, approaches. One is standard antibiotic care. And the first was metronidazole, which is brand name is Flagyl predominantly. And that generally worked very well. Now resistance is such that we're now using vancomycin, and uh, that's often called vancosin. And this drug is hundreds and hundreds of dollars compared to dollars for the metronidazole. If that doesn't work, if the uh, Clostridium difficile is um, resistant to that, there's a newer antibody called fidaxomycin, which is tens of thousands of dollars. So you're seeing an escalation of cost and not necessarily uh, cures from these antibiotics, plus the potential for side effects. Do they do other things as well? I read somewhere there are some ancillary treatments uh, to try to, in a sense, boost the gut flora like, you know, the, the bugs that are healthy within the right. gut, like the use of probiotics or the right. use of... Well, interestingly, you bring up probiotics because what fecal transplantation really is, is the ultimate um, probiotic. I mean, you're basically instilling healthy stool flora back into the gut. But yes, you could use probiotics, which are available over the counter, and they may have some efficacy in the management of C. diff. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with Dr. David Heisek, and we're talking about C. difficile and a new use for an old medical technique. Now, just a minute ago, you mentioned fecal transplant. We hadn't mentioned that yet. And that is exactly what we've been kind of alluding to by saying an ancient treatment. Tell us about this. What exactly is it? As you said, it's it's being used currently or started to be used again. What exactly is it and what's the concept behind it? Well, it's been recognized that there's supposed to be good and potentially bad flora in the gut. And you don't want the bad flora, you want the good. So what you're trying to do is find a healthy person whose stool is presumably healthy and balanced, and taking that stool and instilling it in the sick patient, hoping to restore the normal flora and make them well again. Now, this has a long history from what little bit of research I did. Tell us a little bit about some of this. Well, this goes back centuries, in fact, millennia. And in the Far East, it was known as yellow soup, and practitioners would uh, take stool from healthy donors, make it into a slurry, and have their patients drink it. 
Now, obviously, they didn't know about Clostridium difficile, and they didn't know what they were treating, and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. But this uh, theory has been used for a long time. It's been used in farming, in agriculture, uh, with animals and so forth to restore uh, gut flora appropriately in cattle, for example. And in the United States, it's been used at least since the 50s uh, to treat a variety of illnesses. But the current um, data suggests that its real efficacy is in refractory, difficult-to-manage Clostridium difficile. Right. But in this case, these days, we're not drinking it, so right. to speak. We are which not. sounds repugnant, I'm sure, to most people at the and thought. And it should. Of, it yes. should. But in fact, you have a different methodology for insti instilling or for treating. Tell us about what you guys do. Right. Pretty much most people will take the stool... It's in slurry form so that it's, it's liquefied. It's been strained, so any solid material has been removed. And then it's instilled via colonoscopy. And we know about colonoscopy. That's the ugly test that everybody gets at 50 to rule out colon cancer. And the patient undergoes colonoscopy. And then once the colonoscope has been placed as far up as it can go, maybe the cecum, uh, about 250 cc's of this stool slurry has been instilled. And then the colonoscope is withdrawn and the uh, liquid is allowed to trickle out and repopulate the colon with healthy bacteria. And has this been successful or effective in, in terms of <clears throat> restoring the normal flora? flora and and, and it what, has. what is the efficacy? It, it has. Um, we do not have double-blind placebo-controlled trials that are going to show that this works. Most of this data is anecdotal, and it is difficult to do uh, double-blind placebo-control because you're not going to be having a sham colonoscopy versus a real colonoscopy. But in most cases, it does work. In fact, it's working well enough that many scientific uh, institutions uh, and peer-related uh, um, articles are demonstrating that it does work, and it's becoming one of the mainstays for managing difficult uh, C. diff. Is there anything um, difficult about the procedure itself, or is it just, as you said, the standard colonoscopy? Is there anything that places someone at risk by undergoing this kind of procedure? Well, of course, there's two things. One, the colonoscopy could be done while the patient's sick. And if you have a diseased colon and you're doing a colonoscopy, you do have a higher risk for potential complications such as a perforation during the colonoscopy. The other thing that's very important to rec recognize is that the stool that's being used has to be very, very carefully screened for all sorts of infections that could be potentially transmitted by the stool. You don't want to use just any stool. It has to be from somebody who's very, very carefully screened. So the whole idea of the donor is crucial here. But are, are there issues in terms of any kind of matching of a donor? I mean, I know with certain types of donor situations, the person has to be typed and matched very carefully to the patient. That's not necessarily the case here? No, it's not, but you bring up a very interesting point. For example, um, you don't want somebody who has eaten a lot of peanuts to be donating stool to someone who has a peanut allergy, for example. But the most important thing is that the stool is screened for all of the potential infections that we're aware of that could be transmitted from stool, uh, and that is critical. So HIV, hepatitis A, B, and C, um, toxoplasmosis, cryptosporidiosis, various basic bacterial infections, all of those things need to be screened, which leads us to how you get the donor. And there are basically two ways. You can find your own local donor, so you have to ask somebody if they could donate, and then you put them through a series of fairly intensive screening tests, and who's going to pay for them becomes an issue because the donor themselves, they're not a patient, so their insurance is really going to pick that up. The other concept is commercially available stool, and that's available, for example, from Open Biome in Massachusetts, and that stool is already screened, already slurried, already um, strained and so forth, and sent to you frozen so that your facility can store it frozen and then thaw it when it's time to use it. Again, getting back to the payment factor or the cost of this, is this usually covered under someone's insurance? Probably the not patient? yet. The colonoscopy part can be, but I would imagine many insurance companies are still going to call this experimental. 
although some are buying into it, recognizing that this may cost them a couple thousand dollars versus $20,000 for one course of thadaxomycin. So some insurance companies are beginning to realize that it is more cost-effective to use this therapy than some of the more traditional antibiotic therapies. And things I've read is that some some have estimated it to be well over 90% effective. Yes. From, from yes. the early data You're that's coming right. out. You're absolutely so right. in the very little bit of time we have left, are there other, de- other diseases that can be treated with this? Well, that's a great question. And there may be, but I'm not going to list them, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason being is that the data there is so premature um, that I don't want to go on air saying, well, this could be a cure for such and such and such and such. But yes. But there is a potential there future. There is a potential future for many other diseases. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this information with us. It's really groundbreaking in a way to take something so ancient and actually find that it has use, great usefulness in today's world. Thanks again. My guest has been Dr. David Heisek. He's a clinical professor of medicine at Upstate Medical University. Next up, how a gifted child's intensity can lead to mislabeling and misdiagnosis. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. In K-12 classrooms everywhere, there are children at risk for being misunderstood, medically mislabeled, and educationally misplaced. Not limited to one gender, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic group, these at-risk children are sometimes deemed abnormal rather than atypical and, in fact, may be gifted. Here with more on all of this is Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, Dr. George Starr. Welcome, Dr. Starr. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. So contrary to common stereotypes, giftedness is not synonymous with high academic achievement. And that stereotype we have of the gifted child doesn't really fit all gifted children. Tell us, what they, tell us a little bit more about what they sometimes can look like. Gifted children can have some very intense personality characteristics uh, and behaviors, and they can be problematic and and difficult to parent and to teach. Some of these uh, characteristics might include uh, always interrupting and uh, argumentative, uh, resisting directions. The interesting thing is that uh, they often have a a good point to make when they argue with you. Uh, Sometimes they're daydreamers, and they appear uninterested in present activities or they can alternate between being very happy and very sad, may have explosive anger outbursts. Some of these kids love things like uh, uh, textures and colors and music, but hate, hate places like the school cafeteria because it's noisy and disorganized. Some of these kids will have pressured speech and always be on the move. Uh, they look hyperactive. So basically, that child that you're describing, or that kind of complex of behaviors, obviously not every child has all those behaviors, but these are a range of behaviors, really present as a challenging child. So along with that, there's a challenge to try to figure out what's going on with that child. And I think that there's, there's a range of categories that we try to compare or use as diagnostic categories. And the gifted child, or this type of child that you're talking about, could fall into ADHD, autism, Asperger's, OCD, mood disorders, any one of those, and we might miss the fact that, in fact, this is a gifted child. This is a child with high abilities, uh, and some of them are expressed in these personality characteristics and behaviors, yes. What's the working definition, or what what would you say the working definition of a gifted child is, though? I mean, I know New York State law says that gifted pupils shall mean those pupils who show evidence of high performance capability and exceptional potential in areas such as general intellectual ability, special academic aptitude, and outstanding and or outstanding ability in visual and performing arts. But it sounds to me like there's a lot more to it and that some of it is 
socially determined as to what we consider giftedness. That's correct. And every society has a different uh, construct of, of what a gifted individual might be, depending on the requirements of the society. If you're in a, uh, uh, a primitive society, it might be the ability to hunt and find food. In our society, it's the idea of having a concepts, ideas, innovation, uh, innovative thinking. And basically, right now, there's the problem that the kind of challenging behaviors that you have so clearly uh, outlined can create such a challenge for parents and or their educators that these kids can be clearly mislabeled and misdiagnosed. And that's partly because uh, we tend to focus on the, the problem of behaviors when we don't know what to do with them, and we miss the whole child. Uh, and what we really need to be looking at is the whole child and a balanced diagnosis that includes the problem of behaviors but also identifies and includes their strengths. So <clears throat> it seems to me that one of the problems underlying this, too, along those lines, is that there's a prevalent belief out there that one cannot both be gifted and struggling in school. And that's really not the case. That's not the case. Although most uh, gifted children will do well in school, some of them do have some th uh, problems like reading uh, disorders or emotional disorders or m might be uh, on the spectrum, uh, Asperger's type problems. Uh, and sometimes these will mask uh, their true abilities. Yeah, I mean, to me, many gifted children obviously will be could go on i mean they may experience the world with heightened vivid and you know intensity and a response and sensitivities so they might end up being a creative artist or a scientist or an inventor and but they seem odd or they seem out like outliers and that's because their their abilities are so far above the rest of us uh, that they just appear somehow uh, out, of, out of our range uh, and out of our understanding. And, you, and that's, I think, the point here. The, the fact that we misdiagnose or mislabel has to do with a lack of understanding, but also how does, the, how does training play a role here or the lack thereof in terms of being able to diagnose these kids? My concern is that our current medical training uh, is pathology-based. It's based on finding problems and then fixing problems. And there's very little emphasis put on identifying strengths and a balanced diagnosis. I was fortunate to have training in, uh, in looking for a balanced diagnosis, and that's what helped me with the kids I work with all the years in practice. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with pediatrician Dr. George Starr, and we're talking about the potential of misdiagnosis of gifted children. So what, what are some of the consequences of this mislabeling? What happens to these kids when they're mislabeled? When they're mislabeled and misunderstood, they're often put in uh, settings or classes that uh, are uh, hopefully, uh, or people hope will correct the uh, Challenging the problem, behavior. The, cha the challenging behaviors. Uh, when uh, those challenging behaviors are actually, when uh, if the child were to put it, be put into something like a gifted uh, class, when those are available, would actually help this child excel and be a, a top-notch student. And it seems to me that, that there's also this expediency of labeling, where in order to get funding and find reimbursement for the services, they have to kind of put a label on a kid, and that label can be very damning and very limiting in terms of the way that they're being um, approached. Absolutely, and when people often, when a child receives the label, people often stop seeing the child and only see the label that's sort of stamped on their forehead and on their school cumulative folder. I think one other thing that is really important to understand about children, and all children, not just gifted children, is that there's a lot of variability in the way they develop and that there needs to be that kind of openness. Once you label, you really kind of box a child as Absolutely. opposed to giving them the full breadth of the, the fact that they may be changing quite a bit over time. Yes. You agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So from your own experience, tell us, give us some examples of what you've observed in terms of this problem. I have a couple of vignettes that I put together as part of this talk. Some of them are out of my own experience, some of them out of uh, things I've read. Uh, for example, uh, I found a, a history of a child who was uh, 
Oh, uh, an upbeat boy, although socially awkward, burned by numerous food allergies, strong aversions, hated haircuts, hated blue jeans, hated chocolate. He felt things very deeply, uh, and those aversions were matched by equally consuming passions. He would not allow himself to go inside until he made 23 consecutive free throws uh, on a basketball court, even if it meant missing dinner. He would play video games for up to 10 hours at a time, and his mother got so upset she called the, lo the local paper to complain about what she called the dark side of Nintendo. <laughs> now, this is a child, you know, when you think about it, it presents a whole set of problems. And yet when you look at the outcome, he was now uh, the youngest tenured at 31, the youngest tenured professor at the Wharton School of Business. He earned a PhD in three years. He's published more papers in seven years than many of his older colleagues. He's been an advisor to Google and big business uh, on workplace dynamics. He's a New York Times frequent contributor, and his credo is helpfulness. So here's a youngster, helpfulness. Yeah. So this is a youngster, you know, if a parent brought this child to your office with that original set of symptoms, you would start looking for all kinds of therapy for him. And yet, and might even put him on medications. Put him on medication, whatever, yeah. And uh, yet you look at the outcome on this on this youngster and you can see what the potential is. Well, one would hope somewhere along the way he was recognized as having these gifted qualities and someone stepped evidently, forward. Evidently that happened. To help nurture yes. it. But I guess what we're saying is there are times when these children are not properly identified and by being mislabeled and by being miscategorized, perhaps all that potential could be potentially lost. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, um, Let's get back to this notion of training. I mean, why do you think at this point people are, I mean, do you think the factor of elitism that this notion of, of giftedness engenders is, plays a role here? I mean, people think That's not that, my sense of it. My sense of it is more that our medical training, uh, really there's so much material to be covered on, on the uh, problems that we see and the identification and treatment of problems that very short shrift is given to uh, what I, again, talk about as a balanced diagnosis and identifying strengths. And when I work with medical students and residents, what I try to teach them is, is to look at the whole child. And for every problem they identify, to try to identify a strength um, because this is what our, our child brings to the interaction. And when we look at the entire child, we can have a better sense of what what their potential is. And the idea that each child is unique, and as I said Absolutely. before, may have a different trajectory in yes. terms of how they develop as opposed to some kind of a um, typical, normal, canned way of developing. Every child really has different strategies and different ways of learning and Absolutely. developing. Yes. Um, let's get back to the consequences, though. With these kids, when they're mislabeled, um, it also can lead to a lot of social um, ostracism and the fact that they can feel bullied and, and just kind of marginalized. Yes, that's correct. And you ha have you seen that in your practice as well? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. I read a statistic that stated that mm. as many as 20% may drop out of school and that um, many seek homeschooling and even early college as a suitable alternative because they can't really fit in anywhere. Um, and some even, and some famous people we know, have even bypassed higher education. I mean, Bill Gates, yeah, Bill Gates stands out as a perfect example, and he just, <coughs> you know, I'm off. I'm out of, the, I'm out of here. I'm going to yep. do my thing elsewhere. And yes. there are probably many, many more examples of that. Ab yes, there are. So um, basically, what is the takeaway for all of this? I mean, we know that funding now is scarce for the gifted programs. I think you alluded to the fact at one point that even these programs that once existed called gifted and talented programs, there's very little funding left for those. More of the funding's going to the children who are having learning problems, and that's appropriate, but we're also missing out on providing uh, good programs for the children who are really the future of our country and the future of our society. Uh, and so I think there's a, we're, there's a loss there that and perhaps the pendulum will swing back and we'll begin to recognize these gifted children and, and provide better services for them. So when you say you want, to, you want to avoid labeling or you want to basically balance the, the, the diagnosis and approach, I mean, what type of intervention then should be done at this point, as you see it? 
from your perspective? What I would like to see is that people working with children in education, in, uh, in medicine, uh, in psychology, uh, look at the, th the entire child again, at the whole child, rather than just going for a set of, of behaviors, looking for a set of behaviors that describe a, uh, a syndrome or a uh, disorder. Uh, and it requires a change in thinking and a change in the education of people in these fields. And basically to support the disability side of it or the problem side or the behavioral challenges potentially and also to encourage or help develop all the strengths that all are the there. All the strengths, absolutely, yes. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. My guest has been Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, Dr. George Starr. Thanks so much again. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Derek Cooney, an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, addresses electricity-related injuries. Ever since Samuel W. Smith became the first recorded American electricity-related death when he was accidentally electrocuted by a generator in Buffalo, New York in 1881, we all have been aware of the danger inherent to electricity. Electrical injuries you know, can come from lightning or from high or low voltage sources. Electrical current can enter the human body and travel across the surface of the skin, pass through the skin, or enter the body in deep tissues. The electricity disrupts the electrical current of the heart and the nervous system and, cause, and can cause skin burns, deep tissue injuries, and injury to the internal organs. When burns occur, they could range from relatively minor superficial injuries to deep tissue burns of the skin, muscle, and even the bone. The service signs of electrical injury, however, could be misleading as the internal organs could be injured without any significant obvious signs on the surface. So anytime electrical injury is found, internal organ damage should be assumed to be present. And any person with a significant injury or burn or anyone who loses consciousness from electricity requires immediate emergency medical attention. Individuals who pass out or fall should be assumed to have had trauma and shouldn't be moved right away. You should check their wakefulness, check to see if they have a pulse, and see if they're breathing. 911 should be called right away on all of these cases, and if there's an AED nearby, someone else should go and get it, especially if the person remains unconscious. Because electrical injuries are potentially serious form of trauma, and because burns may be present, these patients should be taken by EMS directly to a trauma center. In central New York, the Level 1 Trauma Center is also the burn center, and both at Upstate University Hospital's downtown campus. EMS knows this, and simply giving them a call and getting them there to the scene to initiate care is the best first step. Do not try to bring someone who suffered significant electrical injury to the hospital yourself, as they really do require the emergency medical care that the EMS professionals can provide, along with safe transport to the hospital. Even uh, just as important, as responding is to remember that children should be taught about the dangers associated with high voltage boxes and lines and taught not to play with outlets or electrical cords. Everyone should avoid these hazards and should avoid exposed places or being out on the water during thunderstorms. Prevention is the key, but if the worst should happen, be sure to call 911 immediately. up next, how seniors are using lifelong learning opportunities to remain vital. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, people are living longer, and with the baby boomer population entering their senior years, the demand continues to grow for ways for them to maintain their active lifestyles and interest in lifelong learning. 
Here with more on how this is being accomplished here in central New York is Lauren Faglin. She's the executive director of Upstate's Oasis program here in Syracuse, and Annette Geisbond, a retired teacher and volunteer program developer with Oasis. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us. So, Lauren, let's begin with you. Help us understand what Oasis actually is and what its mission is. Be very happy to, and thank you also, Linda. Oasis is a program that really wants to help adults improve their lives and improve the communities that they live in, quality of life, um, quality of support that people receive. And it's, um, it's really a full-bodied program that encompasses so many different things. Tell us a little bit about its history. It started in 1982 in St. Louis. Marilyn Mann was the co-founder, and she the Oasis Institute is based there, and they are the um, administrating organization for all the centers around the country. And her of goal, which there are many. There are many. And actually, um, Oasis appears in 43 cities. Um, some have centers, some have programs that Oasis, that the Institute has developed. So what exactly, you were saying it's, it's, the mission is to really kind of improve the community and the lives of the people who participate. But in what ways? What does it offer? It offers educational opportunities, lifelong learning, civic engagement, healthy lifestyle classes and programs so that people can really engage with each other and um, take part in their own managing their own health, uh, meet new people, learn new ideas, continue to use their brain and learning new concepts and um, for instance, many some people are starting piano after they retire and painting, um, music appreciation. So, so a wide, wide range of things. Yes. So how long has it been going on in our community? Oasis officially um, began in 1998 here in Syracuse, but our, our main center opened uh, with the grand opening in June of 2001. Uh, we moved to a new location in East Syracuse five years ago in 2010, and um, we now have over 10,000 members. Wow. Well, that kind of speaks to the whole idea of the fact that the boomers are becoming, and, and you have to be of a certain age to participate. That's Thank the one you. thing we should mention. <laughs> yes, 50 plus. Um, sometimes it's, Oasis is a program for people 50 and over, but often we have people who are in their late 40s and we do allow them to come in because national, the Oasis Institute and the network looks at sustainability and going forward and we want to keep new people coming in. So we do have several generations of participants taking class. So Annette, you've been involved with this organization for quite a while. Uh, yes, um, I have been putting together the State of the Union program. This will be the ninth year. Did you do a vol any volunteer work, or did you participate in, in OASIS programming before this uh, particular program? I participated as, as uh, someone who was interested in, in the programs that were offered. And, Prior uh, to this. One of the popular programs, John Langdon, um, who did a, a, a general survey of, uh, of political issues. And uh, that's what got me interested in. So in your background the is as an educator. You said you're a retired teacher. Yes, I am a retired teacher. So that kind of feel, seemed like it fit right in to then begin. Yes, I work. I work with children for many decades, and uh, the challenge of working with adults appealed to me uh, as a change. Um, population after having worked with children. So what is the response, Lauren and, and Annette, what has been this response to OASIS, the kinds of classes, the wide range of offerings in this community, and how has it changed over the years now that you've been doing this for quite a while here? We've had a very strong response. Um, OASIS, part, you know, the large number of membership, 10,000, is just 10,000 members who've signed up for free. Um, people who are actually coming in and taking classes, we refer to as our participants. And each year we have about 2,000 
participants, unique participants overall, who take one class, maybe 20 classes. We've seen growth, but we also see people, um, sometimes people move away they, um, or become ill or they have to step back, they're taking care of a loved one. Um, different things happen. So some people don't come back, but many people, the majority of our uh, retention uh, members come back. Give us a little bit of a wide range of the programming. You've made a few allusions to some of the things. I mean, you, some things have to do with physical fitness and overall health. Some things have to do with personal enrichment, financial planning. What are the kinds of things you're offering, yes. for example, coming coming up? Well, you gave me a good start. Um, one of uh, In the physical fitness realm, we have classes in dance and yoga and tai chi. Um, the Arthritis Foundation offers a program for people um, in fact, our yoga classes have become so popular that we are pilot piloting a new um, approach this fall. We're offering one of the classes, um, one of the popular yoga classes in our lecture hall to allow for more space. So um, we have a fitness room that's very you know, well equipped, but um, we needed more space. We have classes in uh, music appreciation, chorus, we have concerts coming up, um, Andy Russo is one of, he's been coordinating the concert series and he's performing uh, later in the year. We work with AT&T. They're offering a, um, an event with, uh, where people can work one-on-one -on -one with an AT&T tech person who can help that individual learn how to use their, it doesn't even have to be an iPhone, it could be an iPad, their mobile device. Um, the history um, politics, you'll hear more from uh, Annette on that, but religion, uh, foreign language, foreign language, thank you. <laughs> if you're just join, joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Oasis Director Lauren Faglin and Volunteer Director Annette Geisbond, and we're talking about Oasis and it, the needs that it's meeting for healthy connections for seniors. So getting back to that whole idea, it seems to me that in addition to lifelong learning, what OASIS provides is an opportunity, as you alluded to earlier, Lauren, for some degree of community and socialization. Tell us about that. Yes, the socialization is very important. There are many people who come and say that OASIS has become their lifeline. They've lost a spouse or they've moved and they just, as we grow older, we have more losses in our life. So coming to OASIS, it's like joining seeing their family, um, being part of this important organization where volunteers really pay a play a key role. We have a very lean staff of just four people in an 11,000 square foot center with a lot of classes, sometimes 14 classes going on in a day. There's a lot to do. So people get involved. They they make new friends, um, and it becomes very important having that social connection. Um, as far as overall health, mental and physical, mental. it seems to me. Yes. So, Annette, you have been offering a very specific series that has been very popular. You alluded to another series that Dr. Langdon was teaching in history, but this one is called State of the Union, and you've been doing that, as you said, for about nine years. Tell us about it. What What's the goal of this series, and what takes place? Well, um, nine years ago, I, I went to Lauren and suggested that because it was a presidential election year that we could uh, possibly offer a program that would help um, the participants have more information so that when they uh, go to vote, they they are better informed. And um, she turned around and looked at me and she said, well, we will do it if you will um, take care of that. <laughs> so that was the beginning and it was called um, uh, Choosing an American uh, President. And over the years, um, I became interested in having more public policy and political issues so that State of the Union seemed to be a better um, umbrella term. And we, we live in central New York, which, which has uh, a wealth of uh, academic institutions, not only Syracuse. Um, we have had people come from Binghamton, um, uh, 
uh, from Lemoyne College here in Syracuse, of course, Syracuse University. And um, in terms of being your speakers, so the programs are basically it's a speaker series, and you bring in, as you mentioned, people from a lot of the different academic environments in yes, this community. Yes, and uh, uh, I call call it issue oriented, and we have actually grown. Uh, to where we now, the last year or two in this year, have 12 issues. And usually issues that the United States is dealing with. And Give people. me an example of the kinds of issues for this particular series coming up. All right. Up. Um, this year we're starting out with uh, Eric Kingston from Syracuse University, who has just uh, written a book, uh, Social Security Works. So he's going to talk about Social Security. And, uh, you mean whether it'll be able to be sustained <laughs> over time? Well, the, the title of his book is Social Security Works. So, I see. So he's going to, I'm sure, start out in a very positive way and give us reasons why it, it does work. And, and what generally is the typical age of your participants? Age well, as, as Lauren reminded us, uh, it, it starts at age 50 and, and it goes all the way up to 90. <laughs> or maybe further. And beyond, 93, uh, Well, I must mention for our, the sake of our radio listeners who ha do not have the opportunity to see you, um, I was just told that you are 90, and you look and act and seem like someone decades younger. So Thank you. something is going right in your life, <laughs> but also this involvement with Oasis sounds yeah, like it's we'll been give, a big important We'll give Oasis factor. a little credit. <laughs> just a little, <laughs> just a little. So um, how do people register for this program, or how many people generally do register for this program? Well, it, it has grown over the years, and uh, uh, as Lauren mentioned, the, the center has moved to... Uh, a building that has a larger space. Uh, however, um, the room that we use for State of the Union uh, can only handle 150 people. So uh, today is um, Wednesday. The class starts on Monday, and we're at 148, and so that we can take two more. And um, after that, there's usually a waiting list. So bottom line is you have very, very um, robust registration, a lot of interest, very interesting speakers. And it sounds like, is there a lot of audience participation in this process? Extremely. Um, I, I'm impressed with the audience. Uh, I, I'm fine that they are, they're, they're well-educated. Um, they bring their own experiences. They, they've had decades of their own experience. They're, they're totally engaged. Um, nobody has ever said no that they're not interested or able to do it. And I think one reason is that they have such a lively audience compared to mo most of the professors who are teaching um, young people in, in a university setting who today frequently uh, are more interested in their cell phones, possibly. <laughs> uh, and they, they don't have any of those problems with uh, the adults. We call them adults. Uh, and, and they're totally engaged and ask really very good questions. I'm really very pleased with the audience. It sounds like a fascinating program uh, and something that's not only adding to the community, but also, I mean, adding to the community's knowledge at large, but also to the individual people who participate. So I want to thank you both very much for coming in and sharing this overview of OASIS and your particular State of the Union program. It sounds fascinating. And people can find out about it by calling OASIS, right? Yes, they can. The phone number is 464-6555. Very good. And thank you so much. Go ahead. We're also online. Yes. At oasisnet.org. Yeah. Oasisnet.org. Thank Correct. you so much. My guests have been Lauren Faglin, the executive director of Oasis here in Syracuse, and Annette Geisbond, a retired teacher and volunteer program developer with Oasis. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, 
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Carson Jordan is a student at Wells College working on a thesis project about class implications and gender roles in her rural extended family. Her poem, Why I Realized, is a part of that series. Why I Realized. My family has always accepted the predicament of our economic standing. We have always accepted our mean, bitter thoughts on money and the bills and rich people and their money and things. My father has always tried to avoid the piercing, stifling trials of adulthood. Maybe just so my brother and I would like him a little more than he liked his never-around, too-serious, drunk father. Since the beginning, we've heard stories about bare feet and grumbling bellies, told to be funny, but were so heavy that we felt all the weight of our family's poverty as children. We got full on the stories, the hurt, the hunger, the hatred, the bare feet, the sixth-grade educations, the fear, the mean words, the defensive nature, the lack of heritage, the feeling of camaraderie, the tragic wives, the absent husbands, the miserable children, the lack of faith in any sort of love. And that's when we realize that we are white trash and we let our stomachs settle. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week as we explore diabetes in children. Plus, former President Jimmy Carter's struggle with melanoma and cancers of the head and neck. What can be done to treat them? If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it by going to our website. That's HealthLink on Air, that's all one word, dot org. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. HealthLink on Air is directed by Amber Smith and produced by Steve Marks, with sound engineers John Miller and Gerard Roy. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.